Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 96, recorded on December 1st, 2020. AWS reInvent is here with presents for everyone. Good evening, Jonathan, Peter, and Ryan. Hey, guys. Hello. Hi, everyone. Yeah, and we're live on Twitch. I told you I can make it work. The technology is there. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just fun because it's reInvent, which is the biggest event of the year for all of us here on the cloud world, as well as technically this is the two-year anniversary of the cloud pod, so that'd be something fun to do uh, because sometime during the week of reInvent, Jonathan and I were very drunk, talked about, let's do a podcast. This would be great. We should totally do this. And the next thing you knew, we talked Peter into it, and then Ryan was kind of jealous on the outside, and then we we pulled uh, Ryan into it as well. I just sort of like hung around until you guys let me come on full time. That was my yeah, plan. That's kind of how it worked out. So Smart. It's perfect. <laughs> like like a roadie like road that finally joined the band. Exactly. <laughs> we did make the mistake of taking a week off between our last recording when we did predictions and Thanksgiving and then reInvent, which means they dropped a ton of announcements prior to reInvent, which I will summarize just quickly here before we get into the main festivities of reInvent. So the first one up uh, why we're busy getting ready for Turkey was they introduced Amazon Managed Workflows for Apache Airflow, or MWAA. Uh, this is a new managed service to help you run all of your Apache Airflow workflows, which is just kind of a competitor to Glue in many, many ways. It's interesting to see them giving some alternative options for that use case, which they've gotten a lot of flack over the years for their Glue implementation in particular. Next up is a, a good one, a code signing and trust and integrity control for your Amazon Lambda functions, really going after that PureSec market, killing everything about you know, the ability to do code validation, making sure that code is trusted and that you want it to be running. Uh, and that really kind of really kills that PureSec story uh, quite a bit. So I'm sure Palo Alto wasn't too happy about that announcement uh, right before Thanksgiving. And then uh, new attribute-based access controls, Amazon Single Sign-On, taking that ABAC implementation, which is pretty poor for the most part. If you're trying to use it, there are rough edges and sharp edges you should be aware of, but now integrating that directly into your single sign-on. And one that I am so glad is finally here, multi-region replication now enabled for Amazon managed Microsoft Active Directory. So as you all know, I hate Microsoft Active Directory with a passion, but it was always kind of silly to me that you could not have a globally distributed managed Active Directory on Amazon. And so now you can get multi-region replication of that Active Directory. So you don't have to have multiple Active Directories, which was just a really weird use case that required you to do trusts and all kinds of other terrible, terrible use cases that I don't particularly recommend. So that came out. And then announcing the modules for AWS CloudFormation, their thing their third or fourth attempt at trying to do some type of module library for CloudFormation. Everyone's kind of on this bandwagon of trying to make reusable code elements, uh, which is great, but yeah, I wish they just pick one solution. You can do this now through my favorite service, Service Catalog. You can do this through this new modules capability. You can do this through, you know, CDK. There's so many ways you can get modules that are usable for CloudFormation. Pick the one you like the least or the most and go with that one because that'll be your best choice. But this is the first one that's like native to CloudFormation. Everything else is sort of cobbled on from the outside tool. Yeah, is it? I don't know. <laughs> They're all everything at Amazon's a little bit cobbled together, as we learned last week during a major incident. <laughs> on top of Kinesis. And then uh, Amazon Security Hub integrates with AWS organizations for a simplified security posture management, which is basically centralized security hub for Amazon's organizations. So your security people don't have to go to multiple accounts. And then they dropped a ton of stuff for Jonathan's favorite service, Elasticsearch, including support for 7.9, anomaly detection, pipe processing language, uh, remote re-index capabilities, as well as a new Kibana security user interface uh, integrating with IAM and many other things. A couple other small announcements from prior to reInvent 
reInvent. Amazon CodeGuru reviewer announces code quality detector to help manage technical debt and code base maintainability. I did point this at Ryan's code. It was bad. We turned it off. <laughs> and after Google announced that they were supporting Postgres 13, Amazon is also now supporting Postgres 13 with Amazon RDS database preview environment in place. Uh, Amazon Secrets Manager now supports 5,000 requests per second, which is a great way for your hackers to get your secrets out much, much faster. So do make sure your IAM permissions are ready to go. And then as we mentioned, we announced Code Artifact. They are eventually going to support .NET. They now do with support for NuGet. And then they also added synthetics for API monitoring to CloudWatch synthetics, uh, which are several enhancements were actually really nice. If you're doing any API monitoring, looking for jitter and all the things that matter to you in an API, that is available to you now. So that is it prior to reInvent. It was a whirlwind. I was eating turkey. I was maybe dealing with a big outage, which we will save for next week because it's a lengthy <laughs> conversation that will eat into our reInvent time tonight. So we are going to save that for next week because uh, we're hoping to get a formal postmortem. And many, many things in the future. We're waiting for the anger to die down. Yeah, and it's a little it's a little bit of a fresh wound. So I'm gonna let that one <laughs> let that one scab over first. Yeah, at least they didn't have time this time to, to wheel out the Kinesis product owner or something onto the stage to apologize like they did for the like like they did for the big S3 outage. <laughs> All right. So that brings us to reinvent, the main event, if you will. And so uh, traditional fashion of reinvent on Sunday night, we typically do a, men- a midnight release party where there's a band or a room you can get, can't get into unless you lined up at 7.30 in the evening, which I don't do. And so typically, <laughs> as we're walking to there, they tell us it's full, then we go find the closest bar, uh, which I did last night in perfect fashion as I went to my refrigerator and found a lovely beer and enjoyed it and paid no attention to the announcements from last night's Monday night event. But they did announce something, uh, which I think I've actually talked about on the show. I tried to go find it in the notes if I'd ever predicted it in the past, but I know I've talked about it. The ability to have Mac... EC2 instances. Yeah. So this is officially here. You can now use EC2 Mac instances to build and test Mac OS, iOS, iPad OS, tvOS, and watchOS apps all natively in the cloud. I thought this was maybe kind of tied into the fact they just released the M1 ARM processors for Apple, but uh, these are not ARM-enabled Macs. <laughs> these are Intel Series Macs. They are actually Mac Minis, so it's not custom silicone or custom hardware or any custom relationship with Apple that got them this capability. This is exactly what other competitors have done for a long time in the Mac hosting world, like Mac Stadium and many others, which is what I've used in the past, so I've had this need. Uh, but Mac Stadium is a great product. They've been pretty decent. You can rent basically an entire Mac Mini for about $145 a month, and then you have to commit to it for a month at a time. Amazon uh, now offers you the same thing for eight times the price, which is super helpful. (laughs) (laughs) And they do have a minimum commitment that you do have to run this server for 24 hours per Apple's licensing terms. But, you know, again, if you're a big enterprise and you're tired of having Mac minis all over your office because you can't build Apple stuff anywhere but on a Mac mini, this is not necessarily a bad feature. So I'm glad to see it. I'm glad to see the options. I suspect we'll see code deploy, code commit, code uh, build, all get capabilities to tie into these Macs in some interesting ways. They may become something of underpinnings of other services, so we don't have to see the Mac itself, but uh, it'll be, make other things available to us, which would be really nice. Maybe they got a really good deal on those. Yeah, and as they scale that, I bet we see that price come down pretty quickly. They've probably got a really good deal on those Intel Macs because now the M1s are available. No one's going to buy the Intel ones. They've probably got a, like a bargain, uh, bargain deal, a truckload. <laughs> but can you imagine having to maintain racks and racks and racks for the Mac Minis? It must be a nightmare. I did it once for two racks. It was <laughs> it was a nightmare. I mean, just you know, there's there's my interesting things with this announcement too. Like they're going to integrate SSM into Mac, so you're going to use SSM to manage Macs in the future, which is kind of interesting. Especially if you think about desktop plays. 
This is not a virtualized Mac environment yet, which would be nice to see, but you know, baby steps. Let's build this relationship with you know Apple, buy millions of units of Mac minis, and Apple all of a sudden thinks you're important and maybe they'll do things for you. <laughs> that's how yeah. I see this. But that's really great to see. Overall, you know, I was I was kind of shocked that it got announced because I, I suspected this was never gonna happen. Yeah, I remember wanting this many, many years ago and being mad this wasn't a capability or that Apple wasn't even offering it in any capability. Uh, so it's nice to see something that's a little bit more official. They also updated their licensing terms to support this, uh, which Mac Stadium was always kind of in this gray area, but now they're fully in the legal sense of the world okay to do this hosting. So that's good. I'm just surprised they did it with Mac hardware, though, instead of just licensing the software. I just don't understand the rationale behind requiring Apple hardware when they could have charged the same and just run it on Intel EC2 instances. You clearly don't know much about Apple's uh, profit and loss statement. It's all based on hardware. <laughs> they don't make money from the software in any way. But they could. They could have. They, they could. could have said. They could have said, "Hey, Amazon, you can run this on EC2, but you're going to pay us the same amount." I'm sure Amazon would have been happy and not to have to manage a whole separate set of hardware. Yeah, I mean, I would. I would think of the ARM stuff that you would definitely get potentially a much smaller footprint. I mean, I got an ARM Mac Mini this week. I've been playing with it all week. It's fantastic. But it's it's the same size of a Mac Mini already. But if you look at the teardowns, they're, they're teeny tiny chips. Like they could definitely make a whole rack of custom silicone Macs. You know, some type of special partnership between Annapurna Labs and Mac, Apple teams, and stuff kind of come up with their own thing and, and really build something custom, which I hope to see in the future. But I think they wanted a wide breadth of support. You know, the ARM chips are only supported with the latest version of Big Sur. Some people are still building on top of uh, Catalina and some of the old versions of Mac. And so I think it I think it makes sense for their first offering to kind of offer the Intel version, but I do I do suspect the ARM version is going to come very quickly. And then uh, the next one up on Monday was the Amazon ECS deployment circuit breaker, which I had meant to read this article and give you a really great summary of it, but uh, I had so many other things to read for the show tonight. Uh, but Ryan, you gotcha. have information on this one. <laughs> yeah, so this is this is a nice improvement on ECS ability to do deployments. And so you've always been able to declare the healthy rate for rolling the services over. So it'll only replace so many containers at a time. But now with this, basically you have a little bit more tools so that you can basically, if that deployment's not successful, you can roll back, which has always been sort of a pain if you're dealing with ECS deployments, because if you if you hit any kind of failure previously, basically you were stuck in this like purgatory loop for eternity until you basically either push a new version and force that through, or you know, if you're using CloudFormation, you hit your three-hour default timeout for the stack to fail. So this is a big pain point that they're fixing. I do find it funny that they're sort of announcing a new feature to fix their deployment bug, but okay, at least they fixed it one way or the other. That's how they get the budget to fix it. Yeah. They get to call it a new feature. <laughs> Genius. Well, that's it for Monday. Monday was pretty quiet, as we expected it to be. Uh, this morning, you know, I woke up at 7.30, because that's when I said the keynote was going to start, and I listened to lovely music for 30 minutes. <laughs> so they had a live uh, live performer uh, performing for us, and they started at 8 o'clock promptly, and they went until right at 11 o'clock on the dot. It was an action-packed couple of hours of them announcing feature after feature so much that they couldn't even fit it all into Andy's keynote. And so on Tuesday, not on stage, they announced multiple new Amazon EC2 instances, including the D3, the D3EN, the R5B, the uh, C6GN, and the EC2 M5ZN instances using scalable CPUs, 100 gig networking capabilities with Graviton, EBS performance much faster in the R5Bs, and dense storage options in the D3 and the D3EN, as well as they announced the G4AD uh, coming soon with AMD GPUs for graphics workloads. 
and much, much more. So there's a ton of new instances for you that they dropped or updates to existing instances you know and love. Uh, definitely check those out as some of them have lower costs with much higher performance capabilities and definitely something we would dig into more in depth in another show, but uh, not today as there's much, much more to go to. <laughs> and so. now you know why Andy didn't mention all that stuff on the, on the keynote stage. <laughs> That's a lesson yeah. mouthful. <laughs> there's a lot. Yeah. It's hard to say these <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> We mentioned the uh, container registry a few weeks ago. You know, that Amazon had announced that they were going to come up with their own public repo after GitHub or after Docker basically started charging for non-free access to Docker Hub. Uh, that is now public. They made that available. They promised it would be done by end of November. I mean, it's December 1st. I'll give it to them. So they have that out there ready for you. You can now get all of your public containers from the Amazon Elastic Container Registry public version, which is great for those of you who are suffering from those Docker limits uh, they put on you recently. Next up, Amazon Lambda got a couple of big announcements. First was a one millisecond building granularity for your Lambda. It used to be built at 100 milliseconds. So this could potentially be a multiple X savings and cost for you as you think about Lambda executions. And if you only take 20 or 30 milliseconds, you know now you're all of a sudden you're getting a much, much less cost uh, for the same fake capability, uh, which is pretty impressive. And just showing you how important Lambda is going to be into a lot of future cloud-native architectures. And having this level of granularity really pushes people towards the, I think, what the preferred architecture for a Lambda deployment should be, which is, you know, the reason why they're called functions is because they're supposed to be little in functions, not giant, you know, scripts you run somewhere in the cloud. And so they're really, they're they're adding all of these features together and adding the granularity for cost savings. So you can really pile them together and get a really good app that's really portable, easy to maintain. So you're saying that they want people to run smaller functions? I think the intent is that like a lot of, if you think of the architecture about, you know, like how it couples into API gateway and, and even the development tools and the developer lifecycle, I think that the, the, the sort of idea anyway is, is always pointed towards smaller functions. Until the next announcement. <laughs> yeah, well, good point. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised they increased the time limit to 15 minutes, actually. That's, that's an awful long time for something that should be t- taking, you know, build by the millisecond. Well, they're going to bill you for, you know... They'll bill you for for, for for all 15 minutes of it, I'm sure. (laughs) Uh, The other thing they did, uh, which doesn't make much sense against one millisecond billing, is that they (laughs) give you up to 10 gigabits of memory and six vCPUs for your Lambda function, which will tie into another feature we're going to talk about a little bit here uh, around containers and Lambda, which is exciting. Uh, So that's a nice uh, change to see if you're trying to do big, heavy Lambdas with lots of dependencies or data needs. These 10 gigabit uh, memory instances and six vCPUs will save you a ton of time and money and needs uh, for running multiple Lambda scale-outs. And that's where Amazon does basically create everything that people want. Don't force them into your model, right? They just made it super easy to run super small microservice functions, and they also made it easy to run bigger, heavier functions because you want to, not necessarily because it fits their, you know, what they would do if they were building your app. Yeah. I think you start out small and you let it build up over time as you get more and more complex workloads, you start kind of opening up these options and removing these limits. Yeah. They did announce a new Amazon Wavelength Zone in Las Vegas, which makes no sense other than the fact that reInvent's there. And so they probably were going to have some really cool demos that use Wavelength, <laughs> <laughs> which they could not do, unfortunately. And then uh, the Cloud Audit Academy has been announced, which is an Amazon-specific course for audit and compliance teams. So if you are struggling to get your audit and compliance teams up to date on the cloud, this is now a bootcamp accelerator available to them, which is fantastic. I'm really glad to see this capability as 
the largest teams that are struggling with the cloud adoption at this point in time, I think, is really audit and compliance. How do you do things that I used to do in the data center, but now how do I do them in the cloud world? What's the translation look like? And so having a very focused class for them that they can go and take and get certified in, et cetera, I think is going to be really great for them uh, long term. Yeah, also, it's hopefully, it's a great class for the auditors to take so that they understand how to apply the principles to cloud infrastructure. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. We mentioned before on, on previous shows that the auditors needed to be trained in the technologies as well as the people who are using it. So this is it's kind of cool. And then if, it, uh, if you're an EKS customer, you're super happy as you've got lots of new features today. Not on the keynote stage, but all advanced announcements. So first of all, is a new simplified installation and management for your Kubernetes cluster add-ons to make it easier to scale those add-ons across your cluster. New support for easy to spots instances and managed node groups. The EKS console now includes Kubernetes resources to simplify your cluster management. A new EC2 AMI distro called EKS-D, which is an open source Kubernetes distro designed for EKS, just like there's a managed distro for ECS. There's a new EKS console. I've not looked at it yet, so I can't complain yet about it, but I'm sure it's terrible as all consoles on Amazon are. And uh, that's all available to you today in the EKS space. Uh, in addition to some stuff we'll talk about here in Andy's keynote on EKS and ECS. Anything, any other comments on the pre-live stage content? No, but I do look forward to, to spinning up my own EKS sort of management layer on my Raspberry Pi farm. Yeah, there nice. You go. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, well, let's get to Andy's keynote. So again, I mentioned it's it was three hours of action-packed announcements from 8 o'clock until 11 uh, Pacific time this morning. It didn't feel like three hours. Uh, There's a couple of moments where it dragged down a little bit, which we'll talk about around Connect and a couple other things, which is really not that it was boring. It just wasn't for me. And so I, I acknowledge that those aren't my features or capabilities that I care about, but someone out there was super excited and happy about them. But, you know, it's an interesting set of announcements. The first one, uh, and these are not necessarily in announcement order just because uh, that's not how the... That's not how I do show notes. <laughs> just, <laughs> let's be honest. I just don't have that kind of time to post in every blog post as it comes out from Jeff. So I kind of grab them as he posts them out onto the web and as the announcements came on the RSS feeds. Uh, but the first one I think is interesting, and this is Babelfish Postgres, which is a emulator layer that will basically translate T-SQL, which is, of course, Microsoft SQL's native uh, SQL language, and translate that into Postgres to basically allow you to move your po- SQL Server workloads to Postgres using Babelfish, which I have to say is the biggest FU to Microsoft licensing I've ever seen. <laughs> well done on that, Amazon. It was very clear you're upset about Jade. I understand. You're upset about those SQL <laughs> licensing changes that were made last year to really penalize customers on uh, Google and on AWS. And so you said, look, we're going to make this thing available allows you to move your SQL workloads without having to pay for Microsoft licenses, which, you know, in reality, if it works, is a huge savings for enterprises, potentially millions and millions of dollars in licensing fees and software assurance. And it will be really interesting to see what the real results of this are long term. You know, if it if it actually performs the way that you'd hope it would perform, if it actually meets all the requirements of, of a typical SQL server, it supports things like store procedures, et cetera. I think it could be really compelling and there could be a mass exodus from Microsoft, not only because this is a service you can get on, on uh, Amazon, but they also open source this. So not only did they say that you can put this onto the cloud, onto AWS, and you can get something here, but also you can run this on-premise if you want to build and compile your own binaries, which I'm sure someone will do very quickly. And if you can run Babelfish to do all of your SQL Server workloads on-premise as well or in other clouds, there's a potentially large disruption to the Microsoft ecosystem here, uh, which is quite good. Also, disruption to SQL Server margin dollars, which could be used to compete against Amazon in the IAS space. Yeah, just some of the language that Andy used on stage made it very clear that this was 
not an accident, not just something that they thought was for their customers. This was a very intentional move against Microsoft when they started talking about, you know, predatory license practices and some of the the other examples that he used. So it's no way about yeah. it. It's a giant FU. Microsoft <laughs> is the new Oracle as far as... Uh, I mean, yeah, they're not concerned. that bad. Just, I mean, they're not, they're not well, selling no, all their customers. <laughs> I just mean, uh, I just mean from a standpoint of having a target on their back. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, an interesting play. You know, you wonder if someday they'll come out with an Oracle compatible, you know, mm. layer two. Does this Babelfish get pushed into Aurora, which then makes SQL Server Aurora compatible and native, which would be really interesting. There's just a ton of potential use cases that you can use on Postgres and this capability, which I'm, I'm excited to see what kind of happens over the next 12 months on this one. Uh, again, it's all going to be about how well does it actually work, how well does it actually perform. But if it yeah. does what they say it does, then I think it potentially has huge potential to be disruptive. The next one up is AWS Proton, an automated management for container and serverless deployments capability. This enables the infrastructure team to define standard templates centrally and make them available to developers in their organization. This allows infrastructure to manage and update infra without impacting the developer productivity. And the process of defining your service template involves the definition of cloud resources, continuous integration, continuous delivery pipelines, and observability tools. And Amazon Proton will integrate with commonly used CI/CD pipelines and observability tools such as CodePipeline and CloudWatch. It also provides curated templates that follow AWS best practices for common use cases such as web services running on AWS, Fargate, or stream processing apps built on top of AWS Lambda, which I think this is actually an honorable mention for you, Ryan, is it not? Yeah, I mean, it's a, a tangent to one of, the, one of the things I mentioned, which was an enhanced developer experience with Lambda and containers. I do think that, you know, this is an amazing add to their existing tool set uh, because everyone sort of builds the same automation over and over and over again. Yeah, whether you're starting with Kubernetes or ECS or container layer, you're always building some sort of hook between your CI/CD pipelines and your deployment mechanism and rolling that through either blue-green deployments or however you scope that out. And so now, you know, it's turnkey. And if you're a smaller company, maybe you don't have a huge infrastructure team. You're always waiting on one guy to get your stuff out. Now he can actually focus on templates and code reuse. And this is great. I kind of like it. This is what I want Service Catalog to be, to be honest. This, mm-hmm. is a much, this is a much better idea. My infrastructure, which is handled by my infrastructure team, and then I have my application concern that says here in this Proton service. You know, it's a little bit of a passy kind of play to me, a little bit of Convox kind of play in many ways. But, uh, you know, I think it has potential to be really interesting. I think it's early days. It's still, you know, I haven't played with it yet. I will play with it the next week or two. But, you know, just kind of looking at the demo and what they have in the blog post, it does seem a little bit like, you know, it's got some some rough edges and some use cases that maybe aren't clearly defined quite yet. MVP, right? Yep, MVP. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, the next one up is the uh, new GP3 volumes for EBS, which, you know, it's funny. We just had that storage day a couple weeks ago when we thought there wouldn't be any storage news. Well, there was <laughs> quite a bit, actually. <laughs> uh, the first one being these GP3 volumes. This is the successor to the GP2, which is their SSD EBS. If you move automatically from the GP2 to the GP3, you'll have a 20% lower price uh, than your GP2. This is the seventh variation of EBS volume types, and the GP3 by default will come with 3,000 IOPS baseline performance and 125 megabits of throughput, regardless of the volume size, which you can then uh, scale it up to 16,000 IOPS and 1,000 megabits per second for an additional fee. Uh, basically PyOps in that case. That's a huge improvement over the GP2. That really enables a lot of interesting workloads and really can change uh, the game in your storage space. Just by converting from GP2 to GP3 without PyOps, you might get a cost savings of 20%, which is huge. So definitely take advantage of this as soon as you can. Yeah, this this is one of those ones where you're the you're a sales rep with a quota at Amazon and you just watch 
20% of one of your biggest services revenue disappear and you got to go replace it. <laughs> but how great for everybody. I mean, first thing I want to do is set up a new uh, cloud custodian rule to go look for GP2 instances and nag people till they move them to GP3. I have the tools to do that. We <laughs> <laughs> <Me> too. <laughs> I did that last year and saved a fortune yeah. in uh, unused provision diops and everything else. But yeah. yeah. Well, uh, if you were excited about GP3, you might be really excited about their next version of IO2, which is the new IO2 Block Express volumes, uh, which are designed for the highest levels of performance, taking advantage of the Nitro cards. They give you up to 256,000 IOPS and 4,000 megabits per second of throughput on a maximum volume size of 64 terabytes, all with guaranteed sub-millisecond low-variance IO latency, which is interesting on its own. But then they said, well, not only that, but we're going to add to this multi-attach. We're going to add to this elastic volumes and fast snapshot rate store, as well as give you a new IO fencing feature so you can attach the same volume to multiple instances while ensuring consistent access and protecting shared data, which basically means they're inventing the SAN. They're giving you a SAN yeah. level capability at a volume level so you can basically create these. You can share them across multiple instances. You can use them for things like SQL clustering, all kinds of different use cases. This will eventually open up uh, to you in a much better fashion than the earlier multi-attach capabilities we got earlier in the year. Presumably, those new instances they announced before the keynote today were were uh, designed to be paired with the new functionality because they have much much bigger EBS throughput. Yeah, I would, I would suspect that. Yeah, that's massive though. I mean, it's it's been the blocker for for so many migrations to the cloud mm-hmm. per per instance limits for EBS. I mean, everyone's been doing RAID, striping, yep. mirroring, whatever else for for years, but ha- not having to manage that a boot time with LVM and everything else is is going to be so nice. Just think how much more data we can stuff into Elasticsearch now. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. As, as every every new announcement came out for a new build, I was telling you guys, like, hey, this might be a good contender for Elasticsearch. This one might be a good contender for Elasticsearch. It's like everyone's going through the same pain points that we are in our day mm-hmm. gig. You know, every Amazon customer's like, yeah, cram that stuff in Elasticsearch faster. Yeah. And the big question is going to be both of these IO2s and for the GP3s is how fast do they come to RDS? How fast do they come to EKS and ECS? How soon do they come across the entire platform of services? Because that's where people are needing these things is all the higher value services like my RDS database or my, uh, my various other systems. So it'd be interesting to see how quickly these do spread across the lineup of capabilities in a big, big way. Well, the next one is the uh, closest to a Snowflake killer that I got uh, today, which is the AWS announces Aqua for Amazon Redshift. Now, of course, snow is frozen Aqua, and <laughs> Aqua is wet <laughs> snow. So I do I do think this is the closest I got to it. I, I suspect that we're going to get something maybe a little bit more formal either next week or the week after in some of the other keynotes that are coming up down the pipe the next few weeks. But this was the ability to run memory-optimized clusters for Redshift. So it gives you kind of a caching layer that's very high performance, high throughput. Again, it's not a point worthy, but uh, I'll take I'll take partial credit. But <laughs> I thought it was point worthy. I think it's pretty big. I was on board until you tried to compare the, the Snowflake and Aqua thing. Now, now I'm out. <laughs> now you're out. <laughs> oh, all right, fine. <laughs> I thought it was very clever. I'm like, oh, the name is Aqua. Huh, it's very, very... Retelling. Yeah, I mean the, the the data pipelines and the materialized views that take data from wherever you've got it and does does ETL and drops it someplace else. That's that's most definitely in the Snowflake realm of of business. Yeah, they're definitely building everything around it, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're definitely getting close. So maybe they weren't ready for reInvent, or like I said, it's coming in the next week or two. I do still feel very strongly that this prediction is going to come true. You know, at least within the next quarter if not in the next weeks, which is fine. Well, I'll take it uh, just belatedly and not for any points or bragging rights. So it's fine. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, well, the next one is uh, Amazon's answer to Cloud Run. This is AWS Lambda container image support. Uh, so you can now package and deploy your Lambda function as a container image up to 10 gigabytes in size, which happens to be the new limit for your container, your Lambda function, which is really a weird coincidence. Hmm. Uh, and you can now easily build and deploy larger workloads that rely on sizable dependencies, such as machine learning or data intensive workloads such as ML or data. And so that's a great, an interesting use case. It isn't quite cloud run, to be fair. I did see some people chatting about it on Twitter today. I saw some in other chat rooms around the web uh, where I, I lurk and or chat with people. You know, it doesn't have an HTTP front and door endpoint like CloudRun does. It doesn't have some of the API gateway integrations. But those are all things that will come later, I suspect. You know, Amazon's the king of MVP. And you release it, you see what people are going to do with it, and then you come up with the next size of use cases after you get it. I mean, you can pyre these things behind a load balancer. It's just a Lambda function. It's just the way that the code is sort of packaged into that container runtime that's really the change here. So I think it's an unfair comparison. I get that, you know, in Cloud Run, it's sort of a package deal and it's all one, and it's a little simpler, a little slicker to configure, but all the functionality is there when you, when you factor in ALBs and API gateway. So. It's it's exactly the same. At some point, you have to you have to build an API, whether it's an HTTP API, if it's RESTful or if it's gRPC or whatever it might be. You have to build an API between whatever's giving you the data and whatever your application's doing and sending back. I mean, if you look at the tutorials for Cloud Run, the very first thing they do in GoLang is you, you set up your own HTTP listener. That's no different than doing the same thing in Python or in any language in a Lambda container. So I, I think it's a bit of a misstep to, to claim that it's any more complicated or any less fully featured than Cloud Run is. I mean, I'm just mo- mostly happy because I never have to build like the flat file of all my requirements anymore. Like that's, just, yeah. it's it's going to change the way that I build and test lambdas now just because I have so many tools available for containers. A lot of just really tried and true practices and pipelines and technologies and, and you know, documented processes. And I really have like, you know, for Lambda, which I use pretty extensively, like six different sets of ways to get that live and none of them good. You know, like as far as like, you know, a scaled deployment or any kind of phased rollout or versioning, like there's just no real great pattern for it. But now this sort of enables all that existing work that's been done. In containers in into Lambda, and I'm super excited to start working this way. Secretly, me and Ryan were part of a customer focus group at Reinvent last year when we we got to discuss who was it? Was it Abby Fuller who was there? I can't remember who was there. No, it was, it was Claire. No, it was Claire. It was Claire. That's right. Yeah, Claire Liguri. Yeah, and so we went had these conversations with other industry leaders about serverless, and and it was clear that it was all about the convergence of Lambda and and Fargate and what that was going to mean. So we we we're both pissed that. We didn't have that for one of our predictions. <laughs> right? Like it would have been so obvious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, by the time they started introducing Lambda layers and you kept thinking, well, this is kind of like Docker layers. Why don't we just have Docker containers? I mean, it makes sense. They, they, they made the right move. All these announcements are pointing to the fact that people are going to be using lots more Lambdas, or at least they're encouraging them to. What do you think about the, like the concurrency, the Lambda concurrency limits in accounts and how much are they going to have to expand those for that not to be an issue to worry about? I mean, the default limits can be you know constraining, but the they're soft limits, and so if you increase the concurrency, you can get a lot of throughput through Lambda just by requesting increases in the service limits. You, you know, some very major workloads. So I, I don't know if it's that limiting. I, for me, it would be more of a cost benefit analysis versus you know container runtime. So. I think what everyone wants is the ability to sort of have the Lambda serve the traffic overnight on demand and have the container sort of maybe run 
peak time where sustained throughput doesn't cost as much. And so it really depends on what you have, you know, for what your what your traffic you're serving and what the cost is for that lambda. And so I think it's sort of one of those I want my cake and eat it too. And they're getting closer to delivering that. Yeah, I mean if you only ever get one hit on the website overnight, then why why have a server running? Mm-hmm. Yep. But yeah. again, I mean, if you're going to run ECS or EKS, then you need to start maintaining the hosts. So what's the cost of maintaining the hosts? What's the cost right. of patching? What's the cost of all that extra junk that you don't need to do if you're using mm-hmm. serverless? Right. What would InfoSec nag us about if we didn't have patching to do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they would find something else to nag us about, I guarantee yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would just think now, now we've got containers in Lambda, though, now we can install, you know, Tanium and Qualys and, mm-hmm. and all, oh, those, no. all, those, all those agents inside the Lambda. <laughs> and then we can sign them all to ensure. Oh, oh yeah. 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 We can, we can make sure it's practiced all the way down. And then you can use PureSec on top of all of that. Yeah. Well, the next one uh, hits one of my honorable mentions. This is the new Amazon DevOps Guru helps identify application errors and fixes. Uh, if you remember my honorable mentions, I said I was kind of looking for a service that would help on the observability front, kind of like a Honeycomb I.O. or similar, similar to that. It's a little bit of a stretch. It's a, it's a honorable mention, so it's not pointed anyways, but this is the closest we got to anything in my honorable mention. So uh, DevOps Guru is a fully managed operations service that makes it easy for developers and operators to improve application availability by automatically detecting operational issues and recommending the fixes for them. Uh, once a behavior is identified as an operational problem or risk, DevOps Guru alerts developers and operators to the details of the problem so they quickly understand the scope of the problem and possible causes. So think about Security Hub, but for ops and it's kind of nice to see that they uh, have this available natively out on the platform. I'm really curious to see how this actually implements, you know, for real. Like, I love the idea, but I'm also very sort of cautious on what it's actually... Is it going to point out just like the bare minimum, like you only have one thing running? Or, you know, like, I don't know what kind of example, you know, to really use as an example. But I, I'm really curious to see what findings it has and what recommendations it makes. It's cool. I guess it's kind of somewhat based on a well-architected framework, but also what what we don't want it to turn into is you know trusted advisor for DevOps because trusted mm-hmm. advisor is is useful in very limited capacity, but when it tells you that you should reduce capacity on this instance because you only got five percent CPU, well that's that's great on average, but when I need it, I need it. It can't we can't shut it down. It needs to be the, the right. size that it is. Like that we need a way of sort of documenting exceptions to things so it doesn't keep complaining about the same things over and over again. Yeah. Like I, this I'm, doesn't I'm, need to run in multiple AZs, so stop nagging me. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. it's, a bastion, it's a bastion host. It doesn't need to be highly available. Well, I think we saw, we've seen some contact getting added to Trusted Advisor, right? It now takes into consideration EBS volume metrics, for example, where it used to only look at CPU utilization or memory utilization. So they, it has gotten better, but again, it's, it's going to be very MVP today. I suspect it's not quite fully up to par you know, Ian in the chat room mentions to us, you know, this is very similar to some advanced features PagerDuty came out with a couple of years ago, which, you know, is true as well. So there's there's a lot of tools in this space. I think it's, you know, probably very early days in an Amazon DevOps world where they're going to uh, tooling. But Security Hub, two years ago, we had the same comments. It was very bare bones. It didn't do a lot. There's a lot more now. And so maybe mm-hmm. we'll see those things come to fruition here in the future. And they mentioned use of ML and learning. So potentially this could be something that learns about your workload and doesn't just, you know, have a hundred canned suggestions. You know that when they say ML, they just mean like really fancy regexes, right? <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I like regex. I was always impressed with people who could write cool stuff in regex. That was like way above me. I can as long as there's an internet connection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Regex testing tool. 
<laughs> hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, um, you know, we'll see where that goes with Mimel and, and what that actually means. But again, I think it's too early to say if it's going to be successful or not. But, uh, you know, we'll see. But next up is a uh, continued bastardization of the Amazon Glue name. <laughs> <laughs> with the new Amazon Glue Elastic Views preview. We talked about uh, something other glue thing last week on the show. I don't even remember the name of it because it's lost me. But, uh, you know, again, Glue being the managed ETL job capability of AWS, uh, the new Glue Elastic Views is a new capability of Amazon Glue that makes it easy to build materialized views that combine and replicate data across multiple data stores without you having to write custom code. And so this is a very simple SQL language to make it easy to move data between the different data stores. Uh, again, it's nice to see... I don't know. Have a use case for it. I don't understand the naming convention. And it doesn't do what I want. It doesn't do what I want at all. (laughs) Like it's it's the most frustrating thing to you know try to use Athena, and you're trying to load you know new partitions by date or something, and you go through these things and all the you know it's like oh just use glue or I guess you could script a thing on cron but oh you just use glue and then you try to use glue and it doesn't do it. Or if it does, it's so convoluted and so much like you have to set up. You're just like, all I want to do is just segment by date my data set. Like, this shouldn't be this hard. Well, I mean, if Glue didn't do it for you, I have another tool that might do it for you. Mm. That's the new uh, SageMaker Data Wrangler, which is a new data preparation service for machine learning. I don't know. Does it do it it for you? Uh, It might. Uh, It really depends on... What I when I see data preparation for machine learning, it's more about you know normalizing data, disparate types of data. This particular feature's data wrangler comes with 300 pre-configured data transformations built in that help users convert column types or impute missing data with mean or median values. There's some built-in visualization capabilities as well, and they pair that with a couple other SageMaker features, including the SageMaker Feature Store, which is a library of regularly used machine learning models, as well as the new SageMaker pipelines, which is CI/CD for machine learning. So that's all available to you from SageMaker. So maybe that'll help you. I don't know. It's a lot of uh, a lot of heavy lifting for what sounds like a very easy use case for you, though. It's it's one of those things that it's because I don't want to spend any time on it, so I'm not diving in. I just want it to work, and I don't want to have to think about it. I'm mad because I have to think about it. Boo. What do you think about the name Wrangler? Data Wrangler? Data Wrangler. Yeah, going to wrangle me some data. I'm gonna I wrangle it. it. <laughs> It, it, and if you had a, it, all of your future customer calls, you need to bring your Jeep Wrangler with you when you talk yep. about the data Wrangler. And then you, maybe Foghorn could get a Jeep Wrangler and then brand it with like one of those wraps all about SageMaker. Or Wrangler jeans. You yeah. can just do Wrangler Cowboy jeans hat. with the Fog Ops on the back pocket. Cowboy hat, some... Uh, There's a lot of potential for this marketing chops. opportunities. I'd rock this. Yeah, I would. You should definitely get on that, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> opportunities for swag for next year. I'm the only person wearing the CloudPod shirt. Yeah, I thought about it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have time to find it in my closet. Speaking, speaking about branding. I wasn't <laughs> a fog off shirt. Yeah. See, there you go. I wasn't mm. a real host when you guys had the t-shirt, so I don't think I 
definitely that cut. I should go get my my pin though. I think I saw a Peter somewhere, so you can have Peter. <laughs> Next one up is uh, Amazon QuickSight Q, which uh, is gives you answers for natural language questions about business data. They didn't really demo this very much on stage. It seemed like you could say, how much money did I make last quarter? And it would tell you what the answer to that question is. Assuming you've done all of the backend QuickSight connectivity and all of the data modeling and the data warehousing and the data laking, if you've done all those things, potentially you can use natural language processing, which I assume is some capability with Kendra and a couple other things. Um, I did not have a chance to look into this one, uh, so I apologize to our listeners because I have no idea what else it does. All right, then what they showed on stage. <laughs> yeah. There wasn't much time Yeah, yeah. to do right. research. Not a lot of time. Uh, next up was a ton of features for the Amazon Connect family of products. This is where I, uh, I lost interest for a little bit. <laughs> Other than the fact that they actually worked for a company that was in the contact center management space and you know it handled interactions between customers and client, you know customers and agents, and we tracked tasks and we identified customers based on their calling information and a ton of things that they just killed. <laughs> so that company, I'm sorry to say, may be in trouble. These features were included a new contact lens real time, which is uh, real time dashboarding and reporting. The connect wisdom uh, feature, which allows them to kind of determine where the call should go, what the issue might be based on some prompts. Connect tasks, which is the ability for an agent to, ta- to track the tasks required for a call. So, you know, if they need to open a support case or they need to open a, a RMA, they can set those open tasks. Ability for customer profiles connected to your phone system so you can automatically get, uh, you know, Justin's calling from his phone number. This is Justin because it's his phone number. And then if that's not good enough, they give you voice ID, which gives you the ability to validate that I am who I say I am with my voice, uh, which is really interesting as well. So those are all available to you now in the Connect family. Some pretty big improvements coming to Connect this week. I just enrolled in um, in the Fidelity voice ID thing yesterday when I called them to move my uh, 401k. It's it's an uh, interesting technology, but they got to wonder. You know, it's a combination of, of that plus something else, I, I assume, is going to be secure, not just voice. Well, I busted out my tape recorder and stole your 401k yesterday as well. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> that won't work for you, Ryan, because as a true millennial, I, I refuse to call people on the phone if at all possible. So it's not really my feature. <laughs> yeah. Well, up next is the next version of Amazon Aurora serverless, which they announced I think, a couple of years ago now. It's been two years. This is the V2 version, uh, which they're telling us is going to ser- scale to hundreds of thousands of transactions in a fraction of a second. Uh, delivering up to 90% cost savings compared to provisioning peak capacity for serverless Aurora, which is really the big answer to the problem of if I use serverless Aurora and my very first user in the morning comes on and it takes five minutes for their query to return because the Aurora is spinning up, that's not a good use case. (laughs) And so that's where you end up doing all kinds of auto scaling with peak and you're dynamically changing your peak capacity to handle the load. That's all going out the window if this V2 actually delivers on what they promised, uh, which is capacity within fractions of a second, which could change the workloads for many, many people on top of Amazon Aurora serverless. So this could be really compelling, really interesting. It's available to you anywhere that Aurora is available today and definitely something to check out very, very quickly. I will report on this either next week or the week after because we'll switch right away. Serverless, it's always blocked me from moving small, like, rarely used workloads because that means every single user experience is the wait a couple of minutes for your response uh, or or for batch workloads. So I'm super excited to give this a go and I'll let you know what it what our experience is. We got like three, I think, Aurora instances that run all the time and I bet get used 1% of the day. But they got to be available all the time. They have to be available yeah. all the time. Yeah. yeah. 
And that's just like this kind of make us understand like why some of the earlier announcements came out either before reInvent or earlier in the keynote. Like you, you can't suddenly scale up a database without having fast disk because you can't make up for the fact that stuff's not in memory without having super fast disk. So GP3 or, or the IO2 block storage makes a lot of sense now. And I kind of wonder if I would assume Aurora is built on either Lambda or something similar or Fargate or something, some uh, sort of internal tool that's very similar. So you know, containers in Lambda could be the, the ultimate enabler for things like this Aurora V2. I want to know. I want to know how it works. <laughs> <laughs> how is the sausage made? I, I, need, I need to know how it works. That's that's why I'm where I am, because I like understanding how things work. It's true. <laughs> I have that feeling about yeah. so much on Amazon. Like, I, I still want to know how they do Deep Archive and Glacier in any way that is makes any sense, you know, from a cost model. Because I'm like, you have to put racks of storage in your data center. It has to be powered up. It has to be running. Maybe you don't have to power it up all the time, only when you need to access it, but... There's a lot of questions I have about those services that I someday someone will tell me and I'll be and I won't be able to tell you because it'll be NDA conversation, but someday <laughs> I'll know and I'll be super happy about it. They probably have unpaid monkeys typing things on typewriters. Why it takes such a long time? Because I've got to scan it all back in again. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's a lot of data for a monkey to type back into a computer yeah, that, very that quickly. Is. That's just right. two keys on the keyboard, just one and zero. <laughs> yeah. One zero one 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 zero. The next uh, part of the keynote was what I call the heavy equipment manufacturing industry keynote, which was a bunch of stuff around IoT devices and monitoring of industrial machinery. So they had Amazon Lookout for Equipment, which analyzes sensor data to help detect equipment failure. Amazon Monitron, which is a simple and cost-effective service for enabling predictive maintenance for your machinery. And Amazon Lookout for Vision, which is a new ML service for simplifying uh, simplifies detect, uh, defect detection for manufacturing, all available for your heavy-duty machinery. Now, I used to work in a company that made cardboard boxes and cardboard sheets, and there's a lot of really cool technology here, and I can tell you that it's really awesome, but in a keynote, it was a bit dry. <laughs> like, <laughs> you had to understand yeah, how just... that stuff works. You had to understand how predictive maintenance works for equipment. You're talking about fleet management and things like this that are in large amounts of populations. The ability to do predictive maintenance in advance before something breaks can save you millions of dollars a year, depending on how large your fleet is, depending on your industrial equipment and how expensive it is to maintain. There's a ton of value for this, and I see why they built these things. It's not something that most of our listeners are probably doing a lot of or are super interested in, but it is really a, a cool enabler uh, for a space, just like most of the IoT things. It's not my space, but again, it's someone out there is super excited about all these kind of announcements and what they mean uh, for the future of their businesses. It's a huge task for ML, though, because if you think about what he said, what Andy said, these, the sensors actually picked up. It was temperature and it was vibrations or sound. That's it, nothing else. So they're just inferring the state, the, you know, the status of these machines based on funny noises they make or squeaks or something else, which we may not hear as as people, but the machines will eventually learn the, the patterns of failure. It's the same way I work on my truck, though. Like I wait, I <laughs> wait till it makes that horrible noise, and then I go underneath it and be like, "Oh, I guess it's missing a wheel. I should fix that." <laughs> it's a pretty loud noise. The missing wheel. <laughs> I, I was I was kind of annoyed actually because I th- I knew I knew there was going to be some kind of logistics announcement. I th- I thought maybe Amazon were going to sell their logistics supply chain to to other people to use because they've obviously got invested a lot of time in that i didn't see i didn't imagine it was going to be air conditioning you know iot for bananas (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah there you go I did think out of all the customer segments that that pivot from IoT and bananas until the, the COVID research, I'm like, nice, that was well executed. That was pretty fun, though, that they literally were saying that they were fixing world hunger. We're going to solve world hunger right now. 
It's so weird. I was only half listening to it because I was in other meetings during the time, which is the problem of not being at reInvent is that you get distracted by all your other meetings. And I was sort of listening. I was like, carrier, air conditioning, don't care. And I come back and Jonathan and Ryan are like, this is amazing. I kind of want to work for carrier now. And I'm like, what, what did I miss? <laughs> where, where did this come from? Yeah. Uh, so that was pretty funny. Who, so who would have thought I could solve world hunger by working for an air conditioner company? Yeah. I, yeah. Didn't, I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, yeah. I, was not as, I was not as impressed by some of the other customer testimonies. We'll talk about that later when we kind of wrap up our entire our entire reInvent uh, recap here. But next up is uh, Amazon Web Services Panorama Appliance, uh, which is an appliance to allow you to connect up to 20 cameras into your device to basically do recording, computer vision, identify objects in the videos, and all kinds of things for businesses, uh, which is really cool. I really like to see this feature. I would like to have it for my house. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be priced at my house level, but I am kind of excited for the idea of this. And maybe what this will mean sometime in the future. But uh, you know, interesting to see them using SageMaker and different technologies to take these video sources, do machine learning on them, and come up with identifying data for you know, security or building processes or manufacturing use cases. Again, there's tons of ways you can use this data to help you identify all kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, think about public safety as well. I mean, you could you could look at behavior of people walking around. You could you could potentially put it in the swimming pools and look for people who look like they're drowning and in case a lifeguard's not on duty or if they're not paying enough attention. Um, so many different things you could do, including all. You know, we don't need to go into all the Big Brother things, but clearly, clearly, the, you know, the human behavior analysis is, is something that this is geared towards. Oh yeah. And- and technically, they were showing, you know, using it for cameras and using it for workplace safety. And I was thinking about your prediction about yeah. IoT <laughs> and machine learning for COVID response. And I was like, oh, there's a point for Jonathan. So this one definitely yeah, hits you in the right spot. Uh, these I are expensive. waiting for it. Yeah, yeah no, I, I was waiting for it too. <laughs> it is uh, $4,000 per appliance for production or eight, $8.33 per month per active camera stream. So if you have 20 of those, it's 20 times $8.33. If you are a developer and you're looking to play with this, uh, not use it in production, you get a developer kit for $2,500 and you do not have to pay for the camera usage in that particular case. I'm curious to see where this goes in the next, uh, you know, some use cases come out of this and some case studies over the next 12 months. I'll keep an eye out for them and talk about them here on the show because I think there might be some really cool use cases. And that includes the SDK that he was talking about to run those, you know, machine those machine learning models on the edge as well. So it's pretty cool. It's very cool. Well, if you uh, thought local zones uh, were going to be uh, just like the Japanese local zone, well, one-time pony, you were wrong. <laughs> so in addition to LA, they now open today Boston, Houston, and Miami. They have 12 more planned for 2021. They only told us about three of them, which is New York City, Chicago, and Atlanta. Uh, We'll hear about the other nine sometime later in 2021. So these are all available to you if you're looking for local zones and local access. Again, I I suspect, you know, Miami, I think, was just announced as a wavelength zone a couple, you know, a couple weeks ago. We talked about that briefly here on the show. I suspect these local zones are going to be a big part of powering the wavelengths and powering some of that stuff. So you might see any place a wavelength zone kind of comes out to be is maybe also where you'll potentially see a local zone sometime in the future or potentials. And it may not be guaranteed, but I definitely think it's, it's heading that direction. You know, they mentioned a bunch more of them. Yeah, there's there like 10, 10 or so extra ones that they're going to build in the next couple of years. You definitely talked about it, but they're not in the uh, they're not they're not in the announcement press release. So I don't know. If they they're not in the press release, stage, but they were, yeah. So I remember Kansas City was one of them. I'm like, hmm, where's that? I don't know. Well, if there's if I get a follow up on that, I'll follow up next week and let you guys know. But uh, I I only saw the three in the press release, so I, that's all I gave you in the notes. And then uh, the big three announcements, uh, these ones are actually the most exciting and were the most least talked about, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> so the first, you know, these are all pre-announcements. These are not available yet, but they're coming soon. The first one up is a smaller Amazon Outpost. Uh, so they heard from their customers that Outposts are great, 
but I don't have a rack available to put a full outpost in. And I'd like to have options to have one U or two U sizes to potentially put anywhere. So if I have a, a small warehouse and I want to put a one U server into that warehouse, to have Amazon on the floor to power some of machine learning, that's a capability you can get now. Uh, so you available soon will be a one U box with a Graviton 2 processor or a two U box with Intel based processors, which I am super jazzed about. I think this would be really cool. I think it opens up, you know, the A to experiment with it, see if it even works for your use case because you're not committing to more than a one U or two U box. I think it gives you the ability to do a lot of really cool use cases and uh, remote office management or remote warehouse management, which I think is cool. So definitely going to be interesting to see where that kind of goes uh, in the next few months. Hopefully it doesn't take until, you know, November next year for them to GA it, like the original <laughs> outposts. <laughs> you know, definitely glad to see uh, this capability and definitely makes a lot of interesting use cases come to be. The next one is ECS and EKS can now be ran anywhere. Now, when I say anywhere, I mean on-premise or I mean in other clouds. Well, I didn't say that, but you can be. And ultimately, this is all part of Amazon's big push into hybrid. And so they spent the last about five to seven minutes talking about the hybrid story and what hybrid means to Amazon, which is really an on-prem and cloud story of Amazon because they don't want to mention Azure or GCP um, at their keynote. But all these capabilities are going to be able to come to Azure and to GCP in the future. So if you want to run your ECS workloads on-prem or other clouds, or you want to run EKS, that's all going to be available to you. This is all coming in the next quarter or so. You know, definitely exciting times and really going to be interesting to see if this makes ECS more competitive to EKS for some workloads. I mean, I'm a big ECS fan. Ryan's a big ECS fan from a simplicity perspective. But, you know, there's a capability. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, and for those people that you can't win over and get them to stop drinking the Kubernetes Kool-Aid, you know, they, now you can do EKS. And so you have a single management plane for your cloud-based instances and your on-prem instances. It's going to make a lot of people's lives easier, which I really like. I, I really thought after the mention of VMware and what a strange partnership that was and running VMware workloads on in AWS, I thought they were going to turn that around and say, and by the way, now we can also deploy VMs for v, you know, using the EC2 control plane, deploy VMs in your vCenter deployments on premise, because that would be like the, the closing the entire loop. Now, now they can deploy EC, you know, well, VMs in your own cloud running ECS tasks, and they can scale those up and down. Once they once they have that kind of foot in the door to start managing what we have in our data centers, that would be amazing. I thought they were going to go there, but they didn't. I don't, you know, even VMware is sort of pushing into containers and Kubernetes. So I don't know, you know, like it seems like it might be a weird investment to start investing in VMware and, you know, VM migrations and managing well, they, the whole set. They do have the RDS capability. You can run RDS on premise on top of VMware where you basically plug your VMware into Amazon EC2. So there are some capabilities in that area now, but they're very lightweight and they're very limited to very specific use cases. So I think I think what people realize is that really no one wants to keep paying VMware. <laughs> so if I can give you this capability without VMware, that with Outposts or then now with ECS and ECAS Anywhere, now my ability to modernize my application on premise and then just pivot it to the cloud is so much easier because now it's a container. It's not beholden to a lot of different use cases and operating systems and patching and all the things. Yeah, I mean, I know we've wanted to run ECS on-prem for a long time, but but the, the the limit is still that we have to deploy those VMs manually, and then install those agents or you know build gold images or whatever the case may be. But I think I think having the automation to to manage that side of the cluster as well as the containerized side of the cluster will be will be amazing for enabling migrations. I just want to run it on bare metal. Just run containers on metal. Done. <laughs> Lovely. Well, that is really what Andy covered. There was a couple other things we probably missed. I mean, it was coming for three hours. 
ad nauseum on slides. We're trying to grab it as fast as we can. So if we miss something, we apologize. You know, ping us uh, either through you know our feedback form on the website or you know hit us up on our Slack channel and say, hey, you didn't talk about my favorite feature. You know, we would love to hear about it, and uh, we will definitely cover it. But that means that we need to know how we scored on the predictions. So Peter, you know, you shot for the you shot for Mars. You missed by Jupiter. You know, swing and a miss. <laughs> they did not integrate Sumerian and Chime. There was even no. There was not even a mention of Sumerian on the uh, the announcements today. There was not a major upgrade to CloudWatch logs, Guard Duty CloudWatch events for a sim. Although I'm still hoping out that one might come still in the next couple weeks, but we'll see. And then there was no robot SDK, which I when Monday night became a EC2 Mac announcement, I was like, oh, there goes the robot SDK announcement. <laughs> There's no <laughs> chance for that. So that was a swing and a miss there for Peter. Uh, so zero for three. Jonathan, uh, you had serverless graph database, Neptune or something, something, something like Neptune. That was a swing and a miss. There was no mention of live migration for EC2 hosts, which this year was very EC2 heavy. It could have happened. Like I, I thought that was a long shot when you predicted it, but. Uh, you know, as they're going through the announcements, I saw the EC2 stuff. I'm like, that, that SOB is going to get this. <laughs> this but, you didn't, but you didn't, sadly. <laughs> Maybe the next two weeks. It's still two weeks to go. It could happen. Maybe. Maybe. And then uh, the next one, you did hit up on detailed discussion of the use of IoT and AWS services for COVID through multiple different ways. They talked about that uh, throughout the show. So that is a solid point for Jonathan, putting you right now in the lead. Yay. But wait. Not so fast. <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, next up is the my stuff. I had Snowflake report generation and capabilities in Redshift or a new tool. I'm taking a partial point for Aqua. I know people in the chat room were saying that's a long stretch earlier, but I'm I still taking. Point. I'm full still point. taking. A, I'm, you know, I'm not going to win anyway, so that's fine because <laughs> someone someone hit it out of the park. Uh, but that, that's my one point. Uh, I did not get a price cut. I'm shocked about the price cut. I was sure that I would get a major price cut for C, M, or R instances by 10%. And I was really hoping for that cloud shell. Again, two weeks to go. There's a chance. There's an infrastructure keynote coming up. There's a machine learning keynote coming up. There's Warner's keynote. There's, it's, it can still happen, just not for the points. And so, but I'll still be what happy about, it does What happen. about GP3? Was effectively a 20% price cut? But I didn't say uh, I didn't say storage. I didn't say storage. <laughs> so well, you should have said storage. I, I, I could have said, I, I said any service, and you guys would have said that's not specific enough. Yeah, so. it's true. We would have <laughs> we would have said that. <laughs> so I I picked instances, thinking you know that'd be a good a good bet, or bandwidth, or instances. I chose two out of out of million many services I could have done. So then to Ryan, who crushed us all in a blood, you know, two out of three, he hit on the nails here. So the first one up is a control plane for managing Kubernetes on premise or in other clouds. That would be your EKS anywhere capability. Uh, you did miss on AI ML based observability tooling. And then the third one, it was a COVID responses highlights the adoption rate of cloud computing because of pandemic, which you hit out of the park, which was sort of a gimme, but we'll take it. So that means you are hey. the winner officially of the predictions out of two out of three. And I was one, flying pretty high. And not only did you win reInvent, but because we lost every other prediction show this year because these are all weird, you won the year. So congratulations on that. I mean, you're still going to lose lightning round, but that's okay. <laughs> you, even even if we gave you those two points into your lightning round, that just ties you up with Jonathan. So I don't, I don't know Peter's in charge of that. He'll talk about that next week when we get back to lightning round, which we're not doing tonight. Tiebreaker, we said, you know, this was going to be how many new products or features in total would Andy Jassy announce during his keynote. Uh, we lost count somewhere after 25. So we're pretty sure Jonathan won. Uh, or, you know, <laughs> someone could come back and audit that later and tell us, you know, that there's only 28 which put me in the win, but I don't. I think there was definitely over 29. So I think Jonathan firmly won the tiebreaker if we come to it. So that was a, that was close. And then our honorable mentions, they did not launch four hybrid solutions. They only launched two. They did announce the DevOps Guru, which I took a partial point there for. Lambda will support on Outpost or on-premises. No mention of that, although it could come. 
No Envoy alternatives, no Prometheus managed, uh, no house band. There was no house band. And I would have won that if I had a house band that got replaced by the chart busters, uh, which did not happen. Yes, three EFS with content addressable storage from Peter. That was a miss. Uh, one of the people coming on the stage will trip and fall. No one tripped and fall, Peter. Sorry. <laughs> there was a stage, though. There was a it stage. So you, it could have happened, but it did not happen this time. It didn't happen. And it's sort of like, since you wish that on someone, I kind of hope that someday when Foghorn is on the main stage of reInvent, that you are <laughs> walking up there and you are the one to trip and fall. Just just for the karma of it alone. Just for the karma of it alone. I'll tell you what. If I ever get on stage at reInvent, I promise to trip and fall. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> so pratfall. Oh yeah, totally. Natural evolution for nitro enclaves with an HSM KMS solution product will reduce the cost of key management from Jonathan. No, but there was a HSM backup story we cut from the show because no one cared about it. But there was something there, and for backups, uh, it doesn't count. Uh, forensics capability of taking snapshots for running a memory hypervisor level. This did not come. Uh, they did update on self-driving vehicle tech, so Jonathan gets a honorable mention point there. They did announce another 5G partner, just not in the U.S., Jonathan. I didn't, so. I didn't, did I say U.S.? You did. I did I, I, I think say you did. U.S.? I think you did. No. I don't know. I don't, know. I, don't, I don't know what it would have been that specific. Not that it makes any difference. It doesn't count anyway, so it, you know. Vodafone UK was announced and Tokyo. There's some Tokyo cell phone provider, which I missed the name of because uh, I don't know anything about those companies. And then the enhanced development experience of Fargate or Lambda, which I gave to Ryan for Proton. And then uh, someone will arrive at alternative transportation method. That did not happen, although they did talk about trucks and all the things and some of the other keynotes as well. So overall, congratulations, Ryan. Well won award. Was winner of the year for predictions. So congratulations. Mm-hmm. I hope to give Ryan the, the third point actually for the DevOps guru because that's that's about as close to ML-based observability as you're going to get. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. We could, I, I'll share that point with him. I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then uh, overall reInvent impressions, you guys. Again, I was, I was impressed that Andy went for as long as he did. I thought it would be, you know, we're scheduling three hours in case something goes wrong technically, but it'll be about an hour and a half. It was not. People were worried about missing their their sessions, which was apparently how to make a sheet cake dinner or something. I don't know. Uh, it was right after the keynote. But overall, I thought it was good. I thought the live video method they did was fantastic. It did not feel boring. It did not feel like a normal, you know, COVID era keynote. I, mean, I think it was good. I think they did a good job. I think it could have been a little bit better, a little bit polished in some areas. But I think overall, I, I give it a nine out of ten. It was good. I really enjoyed the fact that it was live as well because this the stunted presentations we've seen from Google and Microsoft and even Werner's thing that he did earlier in the year. For the summit. Yeah, it, it, was, it just didn't feel the same. And I, was, I really appreciated the camera work. It made us feel like we were actually there in the auditorium watching him do the presentation. I think he did a fantastic job. Much more engaging. Yeah, especially when you compare it to all of the other virtual events that have happened. Uh, Amazon's always been, uh, reInvent's always been my favorite tech conference show to go to. I think they put it on really well. They produced it really well. And they had that same level of a couple steps ahead of the competition for this too. One thing was weird though, as Ian just mentioned in the chat, the, yeah. the, the, the candle after track was a little <laughs> odd. <laughs> especially, <laughs> especially, when, especially when Andy like re- responded to the clap. Oh, I'm not sure what you're clapping for. Is it for this or the other thing? I'm like, yeah. ah, that was a little weird. <laughs> I think they just pushed a button. <laughs> yeah. yeah, pretty sure they pushed a button. That was, that was kind of strange. clapping on demand. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. Yeah. That, was a little, that was a little weird. I, I definitely saw people <laughs> commenting on that, which was pretty funny. But then they didn't laugh for, or, or at least applaud for some of the other things, which I thought would have warranted yeah. it. So I was like, it was very selective use of it. I mean, I'm glad they didn't overdo it because I absolutely hate 
it comes with with canned laughter tracks. But I do wonder how they would have done this reinvent with it, considering how much they announced today, and considering how long it was. You know, if you added an applause breaks, which you would normally get during the main reinvent keynote, like there's no way they could have covered everything he covered today in a main show, you know, live session at reinvent this year. That would have been, it would have taken all day. It would have been five hours, you know, from 930 until noon. I feel like they took advantage of that because I, I felt like there was actually more announced this year than I had expected. The last few years, it felt like most of the, most of it was just customer testimonials yeah and and customer spotlights and stuff and they'd sort of gone away from a lot of the big way you know saving those big announcements and so getting a lot of the big ones today was super fun and unexpected yeah and a lot of the customer announcements were very brief which i also appreciated like you know it was because some of them in years past you know i sort of tune out because it's it's sort of the same message over and over again with different company names it's like amazon allows us to do so much more you know like i get it i get it again yep and so, like, it was it was nice that everything was brief and uh, much more, you know, to the point in the customer speaks, with minor exceptions. <laughs> Ooh. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I was not a big fan of the, uh, I remember, the Boom, was it Boom, the guys? Boom, who, yeah. yeah. That like, was the one we were making fun of. The supersonic, you know, plane thing. I'm like, you know, it didn't work for the, you know, the last supersonic jet. Why is it going to work this yeah. time? And, and, you know, it just went on forever. It was, like... Everything else is like quick, like 20 seconds of like, and Amazon enables us to do this amazing thing. And then like, great. And, you know, this company does a great thing with that. And then they move on to the next topic. It didn't work for the last one because it was a terrible design. It was very dangerous. And it was designed like in the 60s. And at least they obviously didn't have AWS back then to help <laughs> clearly, them. Clearly, clearly, all the machine learning <laughs> to help them make sure they don't do that. Yeah. The plan That's, looks awfully similar, though. It does. I mean, like that's <laughs> to the that concrete. It yeah, does. Yeah, like the air is the same. The air is <laughs> yeah. the same, right? Aerodynamics are similar to the way they were in the 60s. Yeah, you're not going to get rid of the Delta Wing for supersonic flight. Yeah, I mean, like, there's still a lot of challenges with supersonic flight. Well, we're going to ask each of the hosts here to give us our top two announcements. But because we have a live chat room, which we've never had before, if the people in the chat room would like to say what their favorite announcement was, I will keep an eye on it as we're talking here, and we'll we'll see what the chat room thinks, and we'll we'll be part of the show. So. You know, for listening to us babble on for however long the show has gone already, we'll give you an answer. So, Peter, let's start with you. What was your favorite two announcements? I'm going to stick with Aurora for both of them, Babblefish and Serverless, because they affect me personally so much. So, Bob, I'm MS SQL from Babblefish from a couple of our customer standpoint, who literally are hamstrung with the cost of MS SQL Server. So, this will give them an option. And then... For us personally, for Aurora Serverless. Can't wait to get my hands on it. Thanks. Jonathan, what about your favorite two? I like the new instances with the faster EBS throughput. It's been a huge constraint for such a long time. Having to pick between you know, super expensive provision die-ups with dedicated EBS throughput instances or local SSD, which is kind of flaky and also expensive. And it never seems to be the right match of, of storage size and compute for anything. So I, I like the new instances and I like the IA2 SAN killer. But the other thing, of course, is the SQL uh, TDS, what was it called again? Babelfish. Yeah, Babelfish. That's that's amazing. I could have used that so many times in the past. It's the fact that I've open sourced it as well. It's not just, hey, come to our cloud and you can use this and, and stop paying Microsoft. It's everyone can stop paying Microsoft. Yeah. That's going to be painful. <laughs> right. Yeah. And Ryan, how about your top two? 
Well, you know, I'm a sucker for containers and Lambda, so I have to go with the the you know bringing your container to Lambda execution. I think that's going to simplify so many workloads and really add a lot to deployment pipelines. And then I don't know if it's just because it got me a point and won me the predictions, but I do think that EKS being able to run outside of Amazon is going to be a bit of a game changer just because just like, you know, Google and, and Microsoft have both done like running Kubernetes is difficult. And so the more you can abstract and the more responsibility you can push towards a provider, I think is good. And so EKS does a lot of that. So I think it's a great ad. My favorite would definitely be ECS, EKS anywhere. I think that's huge. I think it opens up a lot of really great use cases, a lot of migration stuff, which is what I do with the, most of the time is, you know, cloud transformation and, and moving companies to the cloud. So that's just an enabler for that story for me all day long. And then I, I do love the FU to Microsoft on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like, like of all the things that could announce, I would I did not see that coming. And I thought that was just fantastic. And then I, you know, looking here at the chat room, you know, people mentioned the one millisecond Lambda pr- uh, price drop. The uh, GP3 price drop, they mentioned Aurora serverless, the mini outpost, Babelfish was a big hit for the, our listeners in the chat room. So uh, it sounds like similar feedback on the chat room, which is great. So that is it for this reInvent recap. We will have probably a ton of news from reInvent still again next week, uh, as well as we'll bring back our friends from GCP and Azure to tell us all the things they did during this week when they're trying to uh, not steal Amazon's limelight or spoil it, depending on what they decide to do, uh, which is always very interesting. Well, that is it for this week in the cloud. Uh, coming up this week, still there is another keynote, uh, the partner keynote for people like Foghorn and folks that will do their partner keynote tomorrow. I don't think we'll have anything to really talk about there. On December 8th is the machine learning keynote, uh, which will be, I'm sure, very boring for those who don't like machine learning, <laughs> like myself. Uh, the infrastructure keynote from Peter DeSantis is next week as well on December 10th. And then the following week, Warner Vogels will wrap up reInvent uh, with his keynote on December 15th. Uh, so that'll be really great. That is it for here at the Cloud Pod. Another week in the cloud in the books. Have a good night. Awesome. Good night. See you, everybody. Bye, everyone. And that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. Mm-hmm.